0: Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's Scripture and Sermon. Now, there's just a small chance that not all of you have been here every single Sunday in February. So, I want to remind you what we've been doing all month long. We've been talking about the big idea of power in the Holy Scriptures. The Bible says that the world that we live in is full of powers. All kinds of powers that work around us, making things happen. Powers are not disembodied, they don't float around, they actually get in things. Sometimes they get in people, and they get in the institutions that shape our life. And some of these powers are good, and some of these powers are not so good. And you might think that God's power, when it shows up, would show up as the burliest, mightiest, poweriest power of all, right? But the Bible suggests to us really strongly that God's power shows up in things that we call weak. Compassion, caring, and most of all, love. So I want you to hear the scripture this morning. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, gets asked... Teacher, which of all of the commandments is the greatest? Which is the most important one of all? And Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. That is the greatest and the first commandment. And a second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law, all of the prophets. That is the word of God for you, the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Ginny's right. When you love your neighbor... When you follow these commandments to love God and love neighbor, the power of God is alive and at work in you. The Bible says many things that are hard and confusing, but the commandment to love one another and to love God, these commandments are crystal clear. The devil, as they say, is in the details, isn't it? We live, after all, in the real world, and in this real world, love doesn't always seem to get you what you want or what you need. There are so many things that love cannot do. Parents, understand this, love cannot get your child to eat the green vegetables, Love cannot get your child to take a nap when you want them to take a nap. What works instead is bribery. We all know that, right? (laughs) Teenagers and young adults discover that loving someone can't make them be kind to you. Loving someone can't make them love you back. Love doesn't always stop people from harming others. Love can't magically fix the injustices in the world. Love doesn't translate easily into a healthcare policy or an education policy. We know that God commands us to love others, but we live in this world of powers, Machiavellian winner take all political powers, social Darwinian survival of the fittest economic powers. Sometimes against these powers, love feels weak. Love doesn't get us what we want. What's even more challenging about love is that sometimes it's not love that's the problem at all. Sometimes the problem is with you and with me. Some days we get up and we are fully on board with the love agenda. We are committed to it. We believe in love. We are, we are ready to go. And other days... Other days we respond to bribery pretty well too, don't we? Some days we Christians find ourselves motivated by powers other than love, by by greed and, and by insecurity, by shame and by fear. Truth is we human beings are knotted up little balls of mixed Emotions. We know we're supposed to love at all times, but there is something about our very nature that makes choosing love hard. That is our truth, one of them at least. We are people who believe that love is the most powerful force in all of creation and at the same time we are people who find loving each other hard. This contradiction, this irony, this paradox is the core problem of Christian ethics. We like to pretend sometimes that Christian ethics is simply asking what would Jesus do in any given situation, ignoring entirely the fact that we are not Jesus We are tangled up knots of mixed emotions, of shifting priorities. And to work through this, it is helpful for us to have a guide. Someone who's a student of human nature. Someone who knows the teachings of Jesus by heart and who has brought knowledge and wisdom to bear on the deepest and most vexing questions of the practice of love in our common life. Today, Today I want to introduce you or reintroduce you to this guy who is one such guide. His name is Reinhold Niebuhr. I want you to know about Niebuhr because I think he remains, even today, an extraordinary example of how we can take these very clear instructions of Jesus... To love God and love our neighbors and run those instructions through our complex, mixed-up human nature and then apply them faithfully in a world of competing powers. Let's talk about Niebuhr for just a minute. He was, first and foremost, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. The son of a German immigrant evangelical pastor, Niebuhr was raised in Missouri, And after a few years at Yale Divinity School, he was ordained by the age of 23. He served a church in the Detroit area in the early decades of the 20th century. While Niebuhr would go on to teach for 40 years at the greatest seminary in the World Union Theological Seminary in New York, he was always, he was always a pastor In his memoir of his early years in ministry, he talks in wonderful ways about the beautiful and the dreary experience of pastoring, of which Beth and I can attest to both. But as you see in the memoir, even as a 20-something pastor, Niebuhr is acutely aware of the larger social forces at work in his community, the, the powers that we've come to call them. And Niebuhr is aware of how these powers affect and even determine the lives of the members of his congregation. The young Reverend Niebuhr watched the automotive industry in Michigan exercise a ruthless and inhumane kind of power over the lives of its workers. In those years, in the early 20th century, Henry Ford was as close to it got as an American icon. But Niebuhr would issue these blistering criticisms of Ford and his company. Niebuhr wrote in his diary, Today we went through one of the big automobile factories. The foundry interested me particularly. The heat was terrific. The men seemed weary. Here manual labor is a drudgery and toil is Slavery, their sweat, and their dull pain are part of the price paid for the fine cars we all run. And most of us run the cars without knowing what price is being paid for them. We are all responsible. We all want the things which the factory produces, Niebuhr said, and none of us is sensitive enough to care how much in human values the efficiency of the modern factory costs. What do you do if these men in the factories are your neighbors? We're still asking the same kinds of questions about our economic life 100 years later. Niebuhr's answer was that he allowed union organizers to come into the pulpit and talk about workers' rights and and their safety and wages and their benefits and their work schedules. Niebuhr was, for much of his adult life, fully committed to socialist economic policies, believing that God intends all people to reap the benefits of human productivity. Niebuhr's Church in those days probably was a lot like NDPC. In certain ways, it was a a social gospel church. The eschatological vision of the kingdom of God was not just something promised to us as pie in the sky and the by and by. Lions would lay down with lambs. The mighty would be pulled down from their thrones. And the last would become first. The reign of God, the, the rule of love that Jesus inaugurated... Is intended to be an actual reality on earth just as it is in heaven. I bet you like this guy Niebuhr, don't you? So far at least. I do too. But Niebuhr learned in his early days in the trenches of of fighting the car companies in Detroit that the powers as they are won't give up their power just because a few Christians point out that Jesus had something else in mind. In 1933, Niebuhr wrote these words, There is nothing in history to support the thesis that a dominant class ever yields its position or privileges in society because its rule has been convicted of ineptness or injustices. Wealthy and powerful people, he said, won't give up their wealth and power just because Christians tell them they're wrong. As he engaged the principalities and powers around him, Niebuhr grew more and more weary of liberal reformers. He grew tired of their sort of naive optimism that human progress was coming, that it was inevitable, a few tweaks here and a a few improvements or adjustments over there, and poof, the kingdom of God will be here before too long. He grew weary of, of social reformers whose righteous zeal developed quickly into self righteousness. He never stopped believing that God is a God of history, a God of this world. That God's power is at work all around us, all of the time, inaugurating God's reign. But if, as a follower of Jesus, you are someone who wants to participate in that reign, you have to be willing, he said, to get your hands a bit dirty. You can't just moralize and sermonize. You have to go into the compromised world of institutional powers. And in that world, power is poison. Exercising power is morally dangerous to your soul. But exercising power is also morally necessary. For you as a Christian, to engage the world of powers, Niebuhr felt like you had to do it first and foremost with a sound understanding of the human condition. At the heart of our human condition, he said, is the great paradox. Every one of us human beings is two things at the same time. We are simultaneously sinful and created in the image of God. We are sinful, he said. Each of us is eminently corruptible. We know the good, but we do not do what is good for ourselves or our neighbors. We are never, he said, as virtuous in the eyes of our neighbor as we are in our own eyes. To engage the world of powers, Niebuhr said, we must never forget our capacity for sin. And yet... And yet we are always to hold this capacity for sin in tension with another truth, which is that each of us is created in the image of God. We are, each one of us, only slightly lower than the angels, and each of us is capable, by God's grace at work within us, of doing good for ourselves and for others. That is not only our capacity as human beings, he felt it was our calling as Christians. So in this world of powers, Niebuhr said that we can and we should and we must make the world a better place, participate in the reign of God on earth so long as we never get too enamored with our own goodness nor too depressed or cynical about our chronic sinfulness. So if you feel at this point like you're swinging on a big pendulum, you're getting the point of Niebuhr, right? It is. Like reading him is like swinging on this massive pendulum in which he will take you to one side and show you one extreme and then take you all the way to the other side and show you the other extreme and argue for an engaged position somewhere in the middle. On one extreme are the idealists and the purists, Those of us who love to be right but won't ever get our hands dirty. Niebuhr excoriated Christian pacifists who said that the United States history of imperialism disqualified us from standing up against the evils of Hitler. Niebuhr, were he alive today, might also criticize the criteria to which we are now subjecting some of our candidates for office. Any mistake, however small or great, in the past now disqualifies someone from service. No person, Niebuhr believed, who served in public life in any meaningful way, leaves with clean hands." But on the other end of the pendulum, right, when you swing back to the other side, Niebuhr would warn us that those who too readily engage in this dirty world of politics will start assuming that if they have any power at all, it is because they are morally superior. Power blinds. Power corrupts. The more power you have, Niebuhr said, the closer you are to great evil. Americans, Niebuhr noted, have a completely misguided sense of our own power and our own virtue. Through our revolution for independence, our, our manifest destiny in the conquering of a continent, through our intervention in, in the affairs of other nations, couching our imperial dreams as the spread of democracy, Niebuhr said that we as a nation have assumed that we are always right. Right. We've assumed that happiness will somehow magically fall to everyone, given enough prosperity, as if by some invisible hand. The United States, Niebuhr said, is so deluded by the concept of our innocence that we are ill-prepared to deal with the temptations of power which now assail us. He wrote those words in 1952. That's what it looks like, right? That's what it looks like to live and and love in our world of powers. There's no getting off of the pendulum as it swings between our twin delusions of the moral purity of our idealism and our selfish, self-justifying will to power. I hope you'll go and read some Niebuhr. We've got some on the shelf downstairs. You can come downstairs and pull them off and take them home with you. I assure you it hasn't gone out of style. But I would imagine one of the questions you're asking at this point is, what does this look like in practice? If I were to embrace this way of, of seeing the world, of engaging the world, what would it look like? Washington Post columnist E.J. Dionne was a part of a panel discussion about Niebuhr a couple years ago. And I love how he tried to bring this Niebuhrian way into a way that you and I could understand. He said, he said imagine you're an athlete. You're a Niburian athlete. You're trying to win the game, but you never assume that victory renders you superior to your opponent. You would even admit it, that you may have won unfairly when you broke the rules and got away with it. A Niburian parent will read a book and have a strategy for parenting, but always admit that it is luck or God's grace and not your parenting skills that carry the day. Dion says a Niburian will avoid violence at all costs. But he warns you will get into a fistfight if it's absolutely necessary. But as you do so, he says, you'll be acutely conscious of the pain that your blows are inflicting on your opponent. And you will know also that the very fact that the fight is happening is proof of the fallen nature of both yourself and the person you're fighting. The proper Niburian, E.J. Dion says, will have a sense of humor about all of these things, understanding the profound ironies involved in making peace through violence, in trying to act effectively in the world, while trying to act morally at the same time. You are commanded to love your neighbors. You are to believe in the eschatological reign of God, that that reign is destined for our life as much as it is for the next. And this means that each of you sitting here today is called to work in the world for progressive social causes, for the realization of justice and righteousness each of you is called to work to end hunger or create affordable housing in our own community, to protest the unjust detention of our immigrant neighbors, to build the school in Haiti until it flourishes and stands on its own, to dismantle structural racism, to change laws at the state capital. Just know. Just be warned. That this pursuit of flesh and blood, beloved community, will involve you in morally compromised decisions. You will make unsavory allies. And you will hurt people out of your good intentions. You will yourself become morally suspect as you claim more righteousness for your actions than you deserve. Loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor in practice, is a process of abandoning illusions. Not the least of which is the illusion of your own goodness and your own virtue. Loving your neighbor is the hardest thing you will ever do, but Jesus said it first and Niebuhr affirmed it. Loving your neighbor is also the one thing in life that is most worth doing. It's a humbling process, isn't it? This love. It's a bumpy ride. It will keep you coming back, coming back to God, day by day in prayer, asking the giver of every good gift for the gifts that you need to exercise the power of love. Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Let the people say, Amen. Amen.